I met Lord Finkelstein for the first time this evening, but I feel as if I've known him for rather a long time. Back in the day, he and I both worked with, in his case, and for, in my case, David Owen. I, when David was Foreign and Commonwealth Secretary, and Lord Finkelstein, when David led the SDP. Now, David Owen was not an easy boss, though he is a thoughtful, kind, and generous friend. So at a time when I'd only just registered the fact that David Owen did not consider me, as I had long thought, a total idiot, uh, I took due note when I kept hearing Danny this and Danny the other. This Danny, way younger than me, was clearly in a different league, since he was forever quoted as a source of ingenuity and insight and wisdom, all, as you can imagine, exceptionally irksome characteristics. <laughs> Now, Lord Owen's judgment is not infallible, but in this instance, he was clearly spot on, as Lord Finkelstein's biography demonstrate, and that alone makes him a great choice for this evening's lecture. But there is another more profound reason connected with the mission of this place. As Ed has explained, we've just republished Amy's, Amy, Butler, Amy Buller's book, Darkness Over Germany, and have given it the subtitle of A Warning from History. Now, Amy Buller was not a comfortable colleague, the Queen Mother, our patron in our early days, referred to her as the dragon. When I asked our present patron, Her Majesty the Queen, what Amy Buller was like, she replied without hesitation, terrifying. <laughs> but when you read Amy Buller's book, you realize that she was also, of course, principled, committed, and brave. Brave to venture into a world where her German friends and former colleagues had in some cases been seduced by National Socialism, and in others were either hiding in fear of it or doing their courageous best to withstand its advancing tyranny. In his Times column, Danny Finkelstein said recently that he had discovered that his family and that of Philip Sands were almost certainly related. Philip Sands is one of our leading human rights lawyers, one of those who exposed the torture of Guantanamo. Danny's family, like Philip Sands's, can trace their roots back to Lvov, which was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, then of pre-war Poland, and then was under Soviet and subsequently Nazi rule, and is now part of Ukraine. Both families were victims of the Holocaust, and Philip's book, East West Street, is a spine-chilling account of evil and terror. It's a poignant story of human suffering and an extraordinary example of human resilience. But the story is one also told in a different way by Amy Buller, namely that it does not take much before the everyday thing we take for granted becomes the precious thing that we have lost. Now, I don't know where Lord Finkelstein's arrow of history will point. We're about to find out. But we're fortunate to have him on this, our 70th anniversary, when we are reminding ourselves of the lessons which Amy Buller took from her encounters in Hitler's pre-war Germany, and as we apply those lessons, as we seek to navigate our present-day world. Lord Finkelstein. Well, thank you so much for that uh, very kind introduction, and thank you very much indeed for inviting me to deliver this lecture. To come here is obviously an honour, and to talk to such a distinguished audience is wonderful. It's also only a 45 minutes from Pinner, which is very convenient. Um, I was once invited to give a speech in Norwich. This took me about four and a half hours to get to, and when I arrived, there were only two people there. Um, one of them was the person that had invited me. Uh, the other waited until I'd finished, and I asked whether they'd like to join the cause I was there to support, and he said he would, but it would interfere with the terms of his parole. Um, <laughs> so, um, I'm... I'm pleased to uh, have a larger audience, hopefully with fewer criminal convictions. Um, so I've only lied to a journalist once. I felt I had to. It was 1997, and I worked for John Major. And one of my jobs was to come to the front after his election press conferences and field any extra questions the reporters might have. The day before the general election, I was standing at the centre of a ring of journalists when James Blitz of the Financial Times asked me this. Danny, are you going to win? Now, bear in mind that we were about to suffer the worst election defeat for the Conservative Party since 1832. I knew that we weren't going to win, and he knew that we weren't going to win, and he knew that I knew, and I knew that he knew I knew. <laughs> but instead of saying, no, of course not, James, I instead said this, we are cautiously optimistic. <laughs> 
Now, hidden deep in this answer is, in this lie, is an answer to the question I want to uh, put today. Does history have an arrow, and does it point the way forward? I should be clear that I'm not a determinist. I do not believe anything in human affairs is inevitable. I even think that view is dangerous. I don't believe either that because something has happened in the past, it will therefore happen again. But I do write a football column that, with some success, uses past behaviour to indicate what is likely or unlikely to happen next. And so it would be rather odd if it did not. What I want to do today is to see whether we can discern patterns in history that help us understand what might come next. I want to use them to help us to explain the political battles of the moment, even if they cannot tell us with any confidence who or what is going to win those battles. And I'm going to argue that there has been an arrow to history and look at the direction it has been pointing. And my starting point is with the lie that I told to James Blitz. Why was I so keen to avoid telling the truth about our political position that I told James something we both knew wasn't true? It is because I appreciated that for John Major's advisor to admit that we were going to lose was powerful information, information that would make our pretty shaky position even worse. The reason the information is powerful is that people follow each other. They copy each other. They're anxious to know what others are doing so that they can do it too. The social psychologist Robert Cialdini has conducted a number of experiments that demonstrate the impact of what he calls social proof. One was a test of how best to persuade people to save electricity. Cialdini first asked respondents what information they would find persuasive, information about the cost, about the environment, about social responsibility. When respondents ranked them, one piece of information came bottom with almost everyone. Almost everyone seemed certain that being told how much electricity their neighbour used would not influence them at all. But when Cialdini then experimented with using various kinds of information, it turned out that only one thing changed behaviour at all. People saved electricity if they were told their neighbours were using less than them. Another experiment he did was with hotel towels. In many rooms, there's a card that tells you you can help the environment if you hang your towel back on the rack rather than allowing it to be washed. But most of us ignore it, thinking this is just about the hotel's laundry bill. What words can you put on the little card that will encourage you to hang your towel back on the rack during your stay? Well, it turns out that if you tell guests that 75% of people hang their towels back up, it increased the proportion who do it on any given night from 38% to 48%. And if you tell them that 75% of people staying in your room hang their towels back on the rack, it increases the proportion who hang from 38% to 58%. We are sensitive, in other words, not just to what others do, but most particularly to what others like us do. By the way, this means that when we think there's an obesity epidemic, we may think we are striking a blow against fat fatness by saying so. In fact, people just think, oh, I didn't realise everyone was fat, I'll have another canopy. <laughs> now, let's try and unpick the reason for this human foible. Ask yourself this, why do we cooperate with people who do not share our genes? We all know why we cooperate with people who share our genes. It is to help perpetuate our genes. So, but why otherwise would you cooperate? The answer is that we have found it an effective strategy for survival. Reciprocity is a good evolutionary strategy. A vampire bat will regurgitate blood into the mouth of another unrelated vampire bat if it believes that bat is on the point of death. The first bat expects that his favour would be returned if he found himself in a similar position. And this works. It is very powerful. The only problem is, if you do a favour for someone and they do not do it back, we are always on our guard to ensure that this does not happen. Together, this explains quite a lot of our political behaviour. First, our fairness norm is not, as many think, that we should all be equal but that we should get out in proportion to what we put in. People think markets and profits and trade are fair, for instance, as long as it's a fair exchange, because a fair exchange is no robbery. You remember the Hotel Towers example. Cialdini tried another experiment. He promised people the hotel would donate a little bit of money to an environmental charity if they put their towels back. 
It didn't really work. The improvement wasn't statistically significant. But then he tried this. The hotel has already donated money to an environmental charity and would be very grateful if in return you were to hang your towel back on the rack. And fascinatingly, this did work. People are programmed to reciprocate favours. It triggers our fairness norm. If I pay you a compliment, you say thank you. If I ask you how you are, you say fine and how are you? Second, the political issues that produce the biggest reactions are those that appear to offend against the fairness norm. Welfare is a good example. As strong as people's view is that we should ensure that no one was without any welfare provision, we all also bang on constantly about welfare fraud, about people taking out when they aren't putting in. Bankers' bonuses were not a very big political issue when they were merely very large compared to everyone else's salary. They became hugely sensitive after the crash when people felt bankers were taking out what they were not putting in. Thirdly, we find ways to ensure that we are trusted by others and know which others to trust. And one of the quickest is to see if others behave like us and conversely to demonstrate that we are trustworthy because we behave like them. We copy each other's heating behaviour and back the winners in elections in order to fit in to try to demonstrate that we are trustworthy, that we belong, as it were, to the same hotel towel group. I must emphasise that I'm not recommending this behaviour, I'm simply describing it and noting it. An example of where it can lead us astray is in our attitude to immigration. Consider our reaction to migrants in the light of what I've just told you. Immigrants are thought to offend against the fairness norm because they have access to social services like the NHS that people think they haven't paid for, and they don't look like us, so we don't trust them. This is sadly quite a powerful effect. Although both television and open markets are increasing the sense that we have that people of different backgrounds are indeed very much like us, we still have a very long way to go. But important though this is, let's not, this is, let's not get diverted. I want to explain the role that reciprocity pays, it plays in directing the arrow of history. In two brilliant books on evolution, The Moral Animal and Non-Zero, the author Robert Wright looks at the way that reciprocity drives technological development. In order to make ourselves richer, we're always looking for more people with which to trade. But we have to be able to trust those people and to ensure that when we do something for them, they return the favour. This has led us, Wright says, to develop generation after generation of information technologies. Counting, for example, to keep score of favours. Writing to record transactions and exchange information, printing, the rule of law, and so on. And with each, we can see the process. Step one, we seek to get richer. We're materialistic, we seek to make our life more comfortable. Step two, we do this by trying to expand the number of people with whom we can trade. Step three, as we succeed, material goods keep more people alive, so population grows. There are more and more people with whom we can trade, providing us with more and more opportunities to get richer still. Step four, we develop technologies that allow us to do this trade and keep a record of it. Crucially, this allows us to trade with and to trust people we cannot meet with directly. The rules and the recording ensure that we can deal with an invisible and unknown individual with some confidence and with the same confidence that we will have a fair exchange rather than a robbery. Step five. At the same time, the technology shakes up the existing structure of power and wealth. As a result, it is often resisted by those who feel threatened by it. Scribes and kings, for instance, resisted allowing the spread of writing. Dictators resist the rule of law and the use of the internet. Step six. As we seek to expand the number and geographical range of people with whom we trade, we slowly develop broader governing and social structures. We therefore move from families to hunter groups, from groups to villages, from villages to groups of villages, from groups of villages to cities and regions, from cities to states, and so on. And this too alters the existing structure of power and wealth and is resisted. So I believe that history has an arrow and we can work out which way it's pointing. 
to seek to get richer and to succeed, to do it by finding new technologies, to use those new technologies to expand the zone of trust, to develop new governing structures to cope with this expanded area, and at each stage to see the change resisted by those who feel that there might be an adverse impact on their wealth or power, or merely feel the change is unwelcome because it disturbs settled arrangements. So, what does this now mean for modern politics and political debate? First, it means we're going to have a political battle over globalisation. Donald Trump's chief strategist responded robustly to suggestions that he's a white supremacist and an anti-Semite by saying that he's merely an economic nationalist. His argument is that international trade is exporting what he thinks of as American jobs to Asia. This, he claims, only advantages globalists who get rich at the expense of everyone else. This argument is, I think, economically illiterate, but politically shrewd. It's economically illiterate because it ignores the extent to which people are consumers as well as producers, and the extent to which the production of goods and services often mixes components from different countries. Free trade improves productivity. There is no question but that the broad mass of mankind, and even those within a single country, are the beneficiaries of international trade. But it is politically shrewd, because the costs of international trade can be concentrated on particular groups. They are at best unsettled and at worst impoverished by trade. Their discomfort is available for those who wish to exploit it. Who might those groups be? Those who feel particularly settled and feel changed to be a threat. Those who have relatively low skills and education. Those who feel the current social structure advantages them. The biggest swing to Mr. Trump and the politics of Steve Bannon came from older white males. These also provided support for Brexit. It is interesting to look at some of the ways that the battle over globalisation has manifested itself. There has been, for instance, the battle over political correctness, which looks on its surface to be entirely unrelated to economic concerns or to new technology and globalisation. Go beneath the surface and I think the link is clear. In their book, The Hidden Agenda of the Political Mind, Jason Whedon and Robert Kurtzban make the following argument. New technology helps those who are educated to make their way in the world, to trade and to advance. If you have high human capital, you're well-educated, intelligent, well-connected, there are few things in the age of the educated that can stop you from exploiting your talent, save for this, barriers to civic equality. Prejudice and barriers against traditionally subordinate groups, women, Jews, gays, and so on, is one of the few things that can stand in your way. So, the strongest supporters of political correctness are highly educated people belonging to subordinate social groups. As a Jew with a master's degree who's both economically and socially liberal, I'm basically a cliche. <laughs> now, consider who might be least supportive of political correctness. People with less human capital, worried about change, who belong to dominant social groups, elderly, white, males. The argument over political correctness is at root economic. The other way the row over globalisation has manifested itself is, as you might more readily accept, in a debate about governing structures. The drive to create international structures is, as I've already discussed, the natural result of the slowly expanding zone of trading and trust. It is simply the latest iteration of something that has happened throughout history. You would expect the attempt to create laws that govern international dealings as we have more and more of those dealings. And you would expect that attempts to be, those attempts to be resisted by those who feel themselves less able to control the new political structures. In the recent Brexit referendum, Britain divided into two countries, Romania and Libya. Romania were the classes who saw new opportunities abroad as a promise. Libya were those who saw them as a threat. Romania, broadly, were people with more human capital and younger. Libya, those who were less well-educated or older. I'm not arguing that absolutely everyone could be neatly identified in this way. There's a strong uh, relationship between being a member of Levia and being obese, and I'm obese, but I voted Remain. Um, so it is a correlation, it's not an identity. Um, and some highly educated people supported leaving the EU because they think it's an obstacle to globalisation. But age and social background was a pretty good way of establishing how someone was likely to vote. And this too is at root economic.
It isn't entirely surprising that the inhabitants of Libya are worried about the direction that history's arrow is pointing. Trade is successful because it allows countries to specialise in providing goods and services where they enjoy a comparative advantage. Yet this means that high-wage countries will specialise in providing high-end goods and services, and those who are unable to join in, who lack the skills to join in, may feel, may even be, left behind. Even though closing a country to international trade would simply make everyone poorer, the political impetus behind economic nationalism is obvious, and it's not hard to see the fights ahead. Almost all international trade treaties involve some of the same problems as the EU. The World Trade Organization and the proposed transatlantic deal, TTIP, both require international decisions to be made about rules by bodies that inevitably challenge the sovereignty of the parties to the treaty. Thus, any replacement for the EU in the form of bilateral trade deals will raise questions that Brexit was supposed to answer. We haven't had in the UK the political rows over trade deals they have had in the United States. This is partly because we haven't had the power to make our own trade deals. Complaints about the EU have taken the place that in America is filled by complaints about NAFTA. The era in which trade becomes hotly controversial in Britain may have, with Brexit, only just started. The left has correctly anticipated that we would have an argument about equality as new technology and specialisation make some people richer while replacing the jobs of people with fewer skills. What they failed to anticipate is that this battle over equality would turn into a row about immigration, about internationalism and about economic nationalism. They have been left so far completely perplexed by this development as they have been by religious fundamentalism. Because fundamentalists often belong to minority groups and see themselves as victims of prejudice, part of the left sees them as allies in the campaign for equality. Yet another part recognises that they are, in many cases, the enemies of liberty. The rise of fundamentalism is another way in which the political battle has not developed in the traditional mould, and the arrow of history suggests why. It suggests that we're going to have a battle over globalisation, that that battle has now begun and has become, in fact, a central feature of world politics and visiting itself on Britain. It is worth noting that on past form, globalisation would win. But that does not, of course, mean that it inevitably will. Past form, as they say, may not be a guide to future performance. The hour of history also points the way to changes in political power. The development of new technology always proves challenging and unsettling. As throughout history, it wrests powers from elite and hands them to new, emerging, broader groups. And this is plainly happening now. Consider, just as an example, the MPs' expenses scandal. This would not have happened were it not possible to steal the whole of the archive of expense claims with all the associated correspondence and put it on a memory stick the size of my thumb. It could then be analysed on someone's desktop computer. There are any number of examples, the rise of WikiLeaks, for example, or the Sony Pictures hack. The microprocessor has put processing power on everyone's de desktop, inevitably spreading power from those who hold it to those who seek it. What is happening is much bigger than the vulnerability of organisations to leaks, bigger even than the pressure it puts on organisations to be transparent or have transparency thrust upon them. New technology allows, indeed insists upon, an entirely new relationship between those who govern and those who are governed. Consider the experience of shoppers. 20, even 10 years ago, when buying a book or buying goods, videos for hire, records, whatever, we would go to shops and choose among a few items. There could only be a few items because each took up physical space on the shelf, so we had to choose from the big blockbuster items. The shop wouldn't stock niche items because it took too much space for too few sales. Now consider purchasing these goods. Where are blockbusters, HMV, Tower Records, Borders, gone the lot of them and replaced by online vendors like Netflix, Apple Music and Amazon. And these vendors have unlimited shelf space. They don't need to sell just the blockbuster items. They can sell and you can buy some pretty niche items. Now think about political parties. Mass organised political parties didn't really exist before the second half of the 19th century. As politicians began to need support outside Parliament, they had to organise themselves to reach a mass audience through a few blockbuster channels, newspapers and later television and radio. The limited shelf space that these mass channels had meant there wasn't much room for anything but a very few of the big messages. 
So there was a premium on discipline and uniformity, and only the leadership really had access to the mass party audience. The mass media and the modern political party therefore grew up together, and now they may die together. The era in which everyone uses just a very few media channels with very limited shelf space to reach a mass audience, that era is over. Now everyone can potentially reach a mass audience. The political party is not a necessary intermediary. The discipline it seeks is no longer one it can enforce. I recall a few years ago a video made by the MP Sean Simon with the assistance of Tom Watson. Mr Watson held the camera while Mr Simon characterised David, satirised David Cameron. With a few remarks about Mr Cameron's family that were judged in poor taste, he landed himself in a great deal of hot water. He made not too, too fine a point and it's a national fool of himself. But this is not what struck me. What struck me was that while I had on occasion managed to make a national fool of myself and my allies, it had cost me millions of pounds and the weight of party headquarters in order to do so. Mr Simon now only required a video camera and Tom Watson. <laughs> Just about anyone has the ability to reach a mass audience with very little cost or equipment. The election of Donald Trump illustrates how important this is. Mr. Trump was elected from entirely outside the political party system, uh, with a tiny staff and a tiny network of donors, opposed by much of the media, he was able to reach his audience directly. Why, people asked, don't they get the guy off Twitter? The answer was because it was helping him win, and it still is. Franklin Roosevelt was the first radio president, using his fireside chats. Kennedy was the first television president. Obama, the first internet president, brilliantly using late-night comedy skits and entertainment. Donald Trump may be the first social media president, using Twitter with a brilliantly literate understanding of how Twitter works, of its language and its impact. It is common to observe that there is a decline in respect for traditional institutions, banks, the police, the courts. Much less commonly observed is that this decline is really just a function of a change in the power relationship. The centre has lost control to the edges because the edges have the technological equipment to subject the centre to scrutiny. So the arrow of history is pointing us to a more fractured politics, much less deference, much more pressure for accountability and transparency. We will have many more sources of power and a much flatter politics. Third, the arrow of history strongly suggests that the search for and development of new technologies will carry on. The search for new technological ideas and developments has been a historical constant, yet at each stage we're inclined to marvel at the changes that have arrived while entirely underestimating those that are just around the corner. In 1995, one of my great modern heroes, Bill Gates, wrote a book called The Road Ahead about the future of information technology, and in many ways the book was far-sighted, but it missed one thing. He didn't regard the internet as of central importance. After the hardback came out, he realised his error and rewrote the book for the paperback edition. Since then, we've seen not just the rise of the internet, but also of the tablet computer and the convergence between television and computing. Soon the sat-nav may make way for entirely driverless cars. Yet believing these are significant may simply reflect a failure to appreciate what significant means. By the very nature of things, it is impossible to know what the great wave of technological change is. But it is hard to believe that what we have now learned about genetics and neuroscience will not be at the heart of it, bringing with it huge opportunities and huge moral challenges. The arrow of history suggests that we will use this knowledge to help us determine whom we can trust and trade with, and this will pose big questions. Just to give one tiny example, the more we know about genetics, the more difficult it will be to ensure people, as the risks faced by one individual become easier to measure, and therefore harder to persuade other people to share. As we learn more about people's capacities, we will also face a clearer choice and a bigger dilemma about how much we judge that individuals are to blame for their actions. I provide these only as illustrations of the very profound change we can expect, and expect quite soon. Quite apart from the direction in which the arrow points, we must anticipate more and more unsettling change. I want to add one final way in which the arrow of history suggests the world will change, although doubtless there are many other ways which I will not mention, or won't have time to do so. As we trade and trust more people, and as the technology to do, to do it reaches new places, we will see the rise of new powers, countries that are enriched by more open trading and therefore emboldened diplomatically.
In many places in the world where there has been no middle class, a middle class will grow, and in places where the struggle to survive has been all that matters, the politics of relative prosperity will take its place. Western powers will develop new relations with countries that are now sources of imports, exports, and investment. We will also see a political battle take place over the nature of these rising powers. Will they tend towards commercial nationalism or Western-style liberalism? I tend towards optimism over the medium term. It's hard to see how trading and a middle class and information technology will not together produce an insistence, as they have elsewhere, on democracy and the rule of law. But as with all such struggles, it's impossible to be certain of the outcome. Taken together, the arrow of history is pointing to a political battle over globalization, democracy and liberty, all at a time in which politics is becoming more volatile and unpredictable, and in which technology will pose moral and economic challenges that will be hard to answer. We have entered a period of great change in political uncertainty, in which the political and social arrangements that people have become used to are being overturned, as people alternately embrace and resist change. I don't think it's entirely wrong to feel some apprehension about this turbulence. My father was a survivor of exile in Siberia, my mother of Belson. At the 50th, my 50th birthday, I told my guests how lucky I felt that in my life I had experienced none of this. I've lived in peace and never too far from Brent Cross Shopping Centre. <laughs> when people start using metropolitan as a term of abuse rather than a description of the tube line to Pinner, I think it's reasonable to be nervous. <laughs> when the elite is held up for abuse, it is people who read books that are being attacked rather than people who live behind golden doors in great palaces. But along with a degree of nervousness, there has to be a determination to rise to the challenge. Tony Blair argues that we're moving from left-right divide to a new political divide, the divide between open and closed, between, one could say, the open society and its enemies. I think this analysis is characteristically acute. And open societies are more prosperous, freer, more stable and more cohesive. They're better able to allow the talented to rise and protect the vulnerable. The biggest questions now are how we ensure that the battle is won by those who believe in open societies. There is no point pitching into a political battle that is then lost, emotionally satisfying though the fight may be. And there is no point thinking that because the arrow of history points in a certain direction, the battle cannot be lost. It can be lost. And even if it's won in the end, it may be only won after I'm dead, timing that I regard as suboptimal. So we have to consider how best to ensure that those who resist change because they find it threatening or not in their interests can be held to feel differently. We have to consider how much this is to be done by compromise, even though this risks conceding territory and accepting arguments on immigration, on issues like immigration and trade that aren't quite right, and how much can be done by economic incentive, though this risks creating economies where very large numbers of people are dependent on state payments. And how much can be done by being bolder and braver in debate, advancing the case for openness, free trade and migration, although this may turn out to be politically naive. These are all dilemmas, I suppose, but in the end, we will have to make choices, and so we will. Thank you. That was terrific, Danny. Thank you very much indeed. And we've got um, half an hour in which we can discuss and, and debate and, and questions. So I'll kick off. Danny, I've been, I was swept along by your uh, argument. But you, to me, and I need to read what you said to really grasp everything, but to me, where, where you ended up was very different from where you started. In other words, you started with what looked like a benign description of, hum, of human behavior. But the more you describe human behavior, the further it seemed to get uh, away from that. And, where you, and, and therefore, the sort of, if you like, the randomness seemed to me to be as much a feature of, I mean, the arrow, it seemed to me, was doing this rather than this. Complete. I mean, this is very important. Most, most things that we follow as patterns are really randomness. And that is very important to understand. And I, I always, that's one of the things I do in my football column is write about um, people's inability to distinguish between signal and noise. Um, there, there's, actually, there's actually a trophy you get in, in, uh, in Britain entirely for randomness, which is called Barclays Manager of the Month. Um, <laughs> you, you win this if, if, a, if a cluster of random victories coincides with a calendar month. And then you get something called regression to the mean, and you get 
get fired the next month. Um, so um, lots of things that we live in within politics are, are, are randomness. Um, and um, clearly, you can see that if every stage of these historical changes, um, there are periods of great turbulence as the changes are resisted. And um, what creates apprehension is that we're living in that such a moment. The, the, what creates optimism is um, we have tended to get through those periods and the world becomes a better place as a result of it. Um, and uh, so I suppose what I was trying to do was try to explain um, the difficult moment we're at politically in a, in a way that's sort of fundamentally optimistic about the longer term. So, questions? Sir? Uh, David Nussbaum, I'm the Chief Executive at The Elders. Um, I wondered what your talk would look like from the perspective of people in other parts of the world, particularly on the one hand places affected by conflict, which there seems to be a lot of at the moment, you know, Yemen, South Sudan, Syria, you know, etc., etc., uh, it, it's a very different perspective. And secondly, there are other places in the world where we've now got popular elected political leaders uh, adopting quite nationalist policies. So uh, Putin in Russia, Modi in India, Duarte in the Philippines, arguably Trump in the US. Um, why are people who, who you seem to regard as fundamentally economically literate uh, or economically driven, what, what, why are they making those leaders so popular? And as a little PS to that, do you think that's what Mrs. May thinks strong and stable leadership looks like? Um, so, first of all, I, I think that um, those leaders are politically shrewd. Um, uh, sometimes they know, and sometimes they're economically literate, and sometimes they aren't. I mean, in Donald Trump's case, I think he is not. Um, but there are other leaders who, who might be. Um, but I, 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 I think that um, the way of understanding what what is impacting on many countries is to look at the graph of what's happening to extreme poverty, which has just gone like this. And what's happening is that uh, as we're able to trade with the rest of the world, we're making middle classes elsewhere. You know, Steve Bannon's description about American jobs being exported to Asia, well, it's a, it's a silly way of describing it, but it's certainly true that um, middle classes have been created elsewhere. Uh, I, don't, I think that's a process. The voters of, of a Western country um, are actually a bit like the king, uh, the scribes resisting new literate people. We are, they are all, in fact, uh, part of the power structure resisting new emerging power. Um, now, in, in Theresa May's case, uh, my view, my view of, it, of her is that she actually is, you know, liberal economically, and actually relatively liberal politically. Uh, but she sees the her job as prime minister, um, should she continue to serve in it, um, as um, about trying to to make these groups. Form, uh, who, who feel disempowered by what's going on with world globalisation feel as though they have a stake in the economy and that working is going to pay, pay them and uh, that the government isn't leaving them to struggle as the incomes of other people in other countries go up and theirs do not and that their political protests are being heard. And, and actually it is really quite a difficult choice now, if you are like I am, a liberal conservative with all the views that I've put forward, uh, to what extent it's right to make some compromises with these deeply felt beliefs without which you can't form a political coalition and without which you can't have a socially cohesive country. Um, immigration is one of the things that, you know, when I am a son of two refugees, um, I'm also strongly convinced about the economic merits of immigration. Um, but I'm also hugely aware of just of who that, of who feels they benefit from that and who feels they do not, and how incredibly strong and strongly expressed this view is, and the fact that we live in a democracy. Um, I've taken the view, and not all of my friends agree with me, that uh, Theresa May is correct to make some um, appeal to those people and to adjust the Conservative Party's programme to them. But it's very hard coalition, by the way, to keep together, as she's shown. Uh, Graham Mather. Um, Danny, I don't think you mentioned Europe much or at all, so I thought I'd give you the opportunity if you wanted to um, say something on that in this context. Public choice economics sort of taught us that compared with market choices, using the vote 
could be quite a, a tricky and crude mechanism with some you know, potentially big downside risks if you get things wrong. And yet the British conservative political class recently has triggered two such votes, avoidable votes, potentially unnecessary votes in the referendum. And now when we thought we had a five-year parliament regime in an election. And I just wondered if you could reflect on, on the riskiness of, or otherwise of this behavior. Do you think that this is going to continue to feature, or as a friend of mine in Brussels put it after the referendum, it can be rather unwise to ask people who are of necessity are hugely well informed on the mass of choices to give rather simple answers when you don't have to give them. Um, yes, well, uh, let, uh, I didn't want to deal in too much detail with you know an immediate point, although obviously I did talk about Brexit. Um, the the decision about a referendum is very interesting. I, one of the things that I was doing during uh, David Cameron's premiership, um, owing to an idea I had when he first started, was seeing him every month, and I, I talked to him about his premiership, and we taped the exchanges. Uh, and he's now using those for his memoirs, but ultimately I'm sure they'll be available to historians, which is the reason why I did it. He, I was reading even back in 2012, um, uh, which is the time when he came to the decision to have a referendum. And one of the things that's very interesting is it's commonly said, you know, he never thought he was going to lose, so he had this stupid referendum and then he lost. No, in fact, that's not true, as these takes will demonstrate. Uh, he thought right from the beginning that he might well lose. Um, but he believed that we were going to have a European referendum at some point. Uh, he also believed, although it's not on the one that I was reading just now, but he, he also believed, as I recall from a, a future one, he also believed profoundly that the people had a right to that. In other words, that we were going to engage in a a constitutional decision which would decide whether Britain became uh, Canada or Virginia to the United States of Europe. And that actually it was reasonable at some point to ask people which they'd rather be, which they wanted to be, even though he was clear what the costs of moving from one to the other were. Uh, and um, he thought, so he, he always felt that although the call on the right uh, for a referendum was a complete nuisance, partly because George Osborne kept saying to him it would you know, be disastrous for him politically. He always thought it had a degree of justice. Um, he, he thought that it was reasonable to ask people. And he also thought ultimately it would be asked, and that it was better to be asked when he was there, <coughs> able to get the potentially the best arrangements to put to people in a referendum. And it is possible to argue uh, that actually um, getting to 48% persuading 48% of the population that they wanted a, a system that involved paying Bulgarian people child benefit uh, was actually quite a good result. Uh, you know, when you look at what was being offered, I'm surprised that, that Remain didn't come third. Um, so, the, um, <laughs> so that's the reason why he held it. The, 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 it all comes down to exactly the questions we put at the end, and we all have our own answers. Part of the answer is these are temperamental. To what extent does one say... I understand your interests, they are different to mine. I know that in our that the large part of our country belongs to Libya, and my way of coping with that is simply to put my fingers in my ears, ignore what you're saying, and go off to dinner. Um, and actually that could work. You know, it did work for quite a long time. I mean, Tony Blair is exactly what Tony why we had to have the referendum partly was because Tony Blair promised one on the Constitution and didn't hold it, and in the Conservative Party that became an absolute sin. And therefore, no leader of the Conservative Party could long exist not offering a referendum because of that. So it, it was a strategy that wasn't sustainable, in my opinion. And as for people not wanting the referendum, well, 52% of people voted to leave, which suggests that quite a lot of people did want the referendum. So uh, obviously that was one's, one tactic. I would admit I was not the one that I, I supported David Cameron having the referendum, not merely once he'd said he wanted to have it, but before I thought he was right. Richard. Thank you very much. Uh, Richard Burridge, uh, former trustee and honorary life member of Dean of King's College London. Um, thank you. I, I enjoyed that wonderful sweep and, as uh, Stephen said, watching the arrow flicking backwards and forwards. Um, two quick thoughts on a question with there, which is that uh, I was very struck by the horizontal dimension, and I was beginning to wonder if there was any kind of magnetic north. Uh, we've just had mention of the elders, and I was thinking back to 
uh, something that I, a lecture I heard Desmond Tutu give a long time ago about why he thought apartheid would eventually fall was because it was a moral universe. And Amy Buller's book is a challenge to us about how a liberal, cultured, aesthetic, intellectual society got taken over by fascism and the warning to us. And one of Amy's answers was that we needed somewhere which was a, because she thought it had been a failure of the churches and the universities. And where was the moral dimension? Um, and if I may mention the G word, where was God in all of that? And part of what Archbishop Desmond was always saying is that for him, the arrow of history was finally pointing in, the in, in a direction of right and truth and justice because of God, whereas I didn't hear any of that vertical. And I'm just wondering whether you would, how you would reflect on that. So it's very interesting. Lots of people say, um, I, I, um, I believe in God, uh, but I don't believe in organized religion. And, and my view is the opposite. Um, so I, I, I'm, I really struggle with the um, idea of an abstract God. Uh, I find that very hard. Um, but I'm quite a committed uh, liberal Jew. Um, uh, you know, a synagogue attender and a, and a part of my, very much a part of my local community and I regard it as a very important part of my life, being part of the Jewish community. Um, and I think that the discipline that religion uh, provides, it has to be said liberal religion, uh, because there's a difference between fundamentalist thinking of any kind I regard as dangerous, but liberal uh, religion can provide uh, not only an immense sense of satisfaction and community, but also force you to consider other people. So it has an incredibly um, valuable part to play. Um, I, I don't believe that the world is ordered to um, produce a moral end. Um, but I do think that some of the forces um, that uh, are at play do produce a moral end. One of, the, one of my slight oddities in, in religious terms is that one of those is consumerism. And so part of my answer to, to the problem of social progress is shopping. I, um, uh, you know, I, I, I often attend a synagogue and then somebody is like giving a lecture and they hate consumerism. And I, you know, my point is that the world's full of pestilence and disease and war and hunger and the rabbis addressing shopping. Um, and um, I... I I, there was a very interesting piece of work by the Social Progress Index, uh, and what they, they thought, um, you know, not everything's money, they thought. So let's look at all the ways the world um, has changed without money. So they said, um, you know, what does the country have uh, gay rights? Does it uh, cheat, uh, educate women? Uh, does it have free speech? Is it the rule of law? And they put all these, they, they, they made an index. And I noticed something about the index was it was shaped the same way that the relationship between wages and points in the Premier League is shaped. Um, that is to say that um, the more wages you pay, the more points uh, you get. Uh, and it curves at the top because there comes a point where you can hardly buy any more points. Um, well, this is exactly the same with social progress and money. The more GDP you have, the more social progress you have. So part of the way in which the world gets better is that as you get the spread of power I talked about, uh, the, the information technology leads to more information and you deal with more, and people become richer and they're less concerned with having to kill each other in order to survive uh, and it creates the atmosphere in which trust is more possible. So my, I am a big believer in religion. I'm more sceptical about God, although because God plays such an important role in religion, I never, I would not describe myself as an atheist I, because I work all the time at understanding the idea of God and uh, communing with my friends who believe in it passionately. Um, and, uh, but I went, the other place where I part company and with most religion is over the role that uh, money can play. John. My name is John Laws. Given your wonderful description of trends and influences and changes which have affected people's behaviour, at the same time, you've told us you're not a determinist. And I wonder... How far you think that uh, the resolution of moral questions about basic issues is actually independent of or autonomous from uh, your arrow of history? Right. Well, that's a, yes. So I think I have. I think I believe that we do have um, each independent 
you know, we do have independence of moral judgment and decisions. And um, you know, just to give an example, uh, my, where would my moral of history be tomorrow if um, the North Koreans and the American, the Arab history be tomorrow if North Koreans and the Americans decide to blow each other up or not? Um, and so you know, just by that one example, you can demonstrate that it's not deterministic. Um, you know, and it's certainly open to the argument, well, all these things have happened until now. Uh, this will not be tomorrow's political battle. Um, and I don't think that's impossible. It's just, and we all have the power and the capacity to do that, but I just, I just don't think we will. I just think that we're in our relationships. It's probable that what we've done tomorrow will, will happen again. But it's not a, you know, I think it's important to, uh, it's not deterministic. That's why I made that point at the beginning. And I, and I you know, it's not, that's not just merely randomness, the whole direction. Uh, Sam. Thank you. Andrew Metham from the Amar uh, Foundation. Um, my take on the your, sort of first half of your, your talk is um, the arrow the of history is driven by uh, economic growth, total factor productivity, elevation, um, development, um, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, what do you think it would take for the arrow of history to go backwards? That it could go backwards? Yes. Well, it's possible um, you know I just argued that it is possible and so the fact that this has all happened up until now doesn't mean it will ca carry on happening it's just that um, I think that's not that likely I mean I think it's I think we're always going to be searching for new way you know new ways of trying to make ourselves wealthy I mean the, the, the only, the only the, there are things that I suppose could make this harder and they might be the environment or uh, you know environmental problems or um, or nuclear war uh, my view on environmental problems, I've always taken the view that um, the problem's ultimately going to be solved by a machine that goes ping, rather than by uh, us trying to um, fly less easy jet flights to Malaga. Um, but, uh, you know, which I think is a wholly unrealistic solution. Um, but there used to be a, I, I, one of my favourite things when I was a kid was a... Um, was a sooty and sweep record, which my, my parents only had six records, and that's one of them. Uh, and uh, it, sooty planes down a tree to make a cocktail stick, uh, and uh, for a party. And that is um, that's lots of what we do in public policy. You know, I think these are very. I think the acquisitive instinct is very hard to resist, and it's in us, and it drives us on to searching new technologies, to searching new trust relationships, to creating relationships between us. And I, I find that hard to think, to think how that would go in reverse. And that's why I think it's an arrow. Uh, Lord Lloyd. Uh, your intriguing title, The Arrow of History, um, suggests possibly that we ought to be able to learn from history and, and avoid the mistakes of the past uh, by doing so. Uh, well, in the first place, I, I have doubts about whether we are clever enough to do that. But secondly, surely it is the case that things are never exactly the same as they were. And therefore, to try and guess the past from the, the future from the past is, is a vain thing to do. Isn't our better course to adopt the approach of Bishop Butler, remember, in the, I think, 18th century, was it, who said quite simply, Things are what they are, and their consequences will be what they will be. Why then should we wish to be deceived? As a victim, which I've never found more valuable than during an election time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, see the, I see that argument. I, I simply think that um, it's striking to look at the changes that happen over thousands of years, uh, and they do seem to me to have, you know, common features. And it seemed unlikely that that won't persist. It's not impossible, um, but it just seems unlikely. And I think you can always tell quite a lot from the way that things have happened in the past, and to what, what from what will happen in the future. So that's just the way I choose to look at it. But it it doesn't. You know, of course, sometimes with the lessons of history, we don't learn them properly. And of course, problems that have happened before um, can happen again. And you, you know, um, some of the problems of, that happened in the 1930s, you'd have to be blind not to worry about whether those problems might not happen now. I certainly have that worry. Question at the back. 
Thanks very much. Um, Michael Wakelin from Cambridge University Interfaith Programme and Coates' House. I was wondering, in the context of the arrow of history, are you pleased that Arsene Wenger has been given two years more as Arsenal manager? Well, it's, it's very... Uh, this is genuinely interesting for those people who are not interested in football, so I better just give a slight introduction. Arsenal's uh, had a manager for a long period of time. At the beginning of his period of office, he won a lot of trophies. Um, and he stayed, even though his trophy hall has um, reduced. Uh, and there are lots of people who want to get rid of him. The truth about Arsene Wenger is that he is now managing a club that is about the fourth or fifth best finance club in the country, and he manages to make them come fourth or fifth, right? Or you know, when they were the third managing, third best finance, they came third. Um, with a great consistency, he wins knockout competitions with a with a consistency that is slightly eerie. That you would it's almost certainly statistically significantly different from uh, random pattern. Uh, I've come to the conclusion that he's one of the few football managers who understands what an average is. That, that's by dealing with him and by being very interested in football data. Uh, and as a result, he manages his team in such a way as to uh, produce exactly this, this result. Great, unbelievable, brilliant consistency, eliminating randomness to an almost astonishing degree. Um, this is both amazing and also very frustrating, because it means that you come forth when your team wants you actually to come 10th and 1st, which is what Chelsea did in the last two seasons. Um, so uh, what Arsenal's board have chosen to do is they've chosen consistency and the elimination of randomness over serendipity and trophies. Um, and um, I think Arsene Wenger is an extraordinary manager. Uh, and I, one of the reasons I think he's extraordinary is precisely because he's failed to win trophies for such a long period of time. Now, then there comes the question, why did he win it at the beginning? Uh, why did he win the trophies at the beginning? And it, and it, and it may be, this is a thesis, and I have that uh, when, um, when he first came, he, he was the, one of the first foreign managers, and he introduced new techniques which have now been competed away. Um, and so you could argue that Arsenal might get another manager who on a consistent basis would have those um, techniques and then, then be competed away, and you would get, but you would first get that lift. Um, but much of the data evidence, and Graham might know this, you might even have published this at the IEA while you were there, but much of the data evidence is that, that um, that's very difficult to purchase that. And so therefore you go cycling through a load of managers who end up not doing very well. This is all just a big lesson in randomness, possibly more than you uh, bargained for. But that's <laughs> Got time for one more question. Yeah, so. uh, your talk was just wonderful. It's a very top-down view of what's happening, and it's very difficult to imagine that any kind of narrative seen from above could actually be uh, infallible, because you're part of the picture that you're painting. But in your arrow of history, just to follow the idea of the environment a bit more, do you see, uh, the, do you ever contemplate how this arrow might come to a sort of mirror where the population expands to such an extent and the resources de deplete to such an extent that we find we see ourselves coming in the mirror and we do actually have to either find some kind of global cooperation or fail as a yeah. race? I, I, I think that is completely possible. Um, but I regard it as more likely that we'll fight, we'll... Um, develop a way of dealing with it technologically. And I think is by far the most likely way of trying to solve the problem. Um, what I would say that my, my analysis probably doesn't shed as much light as it ought on this particularly difficult question, but here, here's one bit thing that it does. Uh, it does suggest that the acquisitive instinct is such an incredible driver of human progress over such a long time that trying to solve the, the environmental problem by uh, trying to squash it is very unlikely to succeed. And trying to solve it by trying to harness it is much more likely to succeed. But, of course, one thing is it may just simply fail. I'm just extremely unpersuaded by the idea that we're going to solve the problem by somehow voluntarily getting everyone to agree not to be as acquisitive. But this, uh, the problem with the fear of destruction is a problem that... Um, is that everyone's a free rider on it. It's a, it's a tragedy of the commons. I just don't think that will solve it. So, and I, I honestly think we can try, we can try, it seems to me amazing that we're not putting much more effort 
than we are into. So that would be my environmental uh, concern is that um, our policy environment should be to spend vast fortunes on trying to solve the technological problems here rather than an almost certainly impossible program of trying to make people's central heating more expensive and trying to somehow central heat pin up uh, into creating a global end of the economic of the environmental problem. That's just not going to happen. It, it seems to me it is playing down the tree to make a cotton That's what I think. But I do agree with you, the problem's very serious. And I don't think it's certain we'll solve it. But if we're going to solve it, that's the only way. Well, then, if the measure of, of, of the success of your talk is the, is the amount of interest and, and uh, even controversy that it's, that it's produced, uh, then that's a very high measure. And you've given us a fantastic uh, evening, extremely uh, stimulating, and I think thought-provoking. Uh, and I think all of us are going to pour over what you actually what it actually said. And you may get lots of comments on Twitter and elsewhere <laughs> that make you regret that you ever decided to do it. But we are very grateful that you did. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.